Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Road courses. There are the winding up and down stretches of asphalt over several miles with a hairpin or two and chicane tossed in just for fun. For most of NASCAR's 74-year existence, many drivers didn't care too much for them. They grew up on ovals and did their very best work on the four-turn, half-miles, intermediates, and super speedways. NASCAR's founder, Bill France Sr., felt road courses offered a little more than the standard Sunday afternoon circular shows. A road course or two made sense. After all, early moonshiners honed their craft on the back roads of the North Carolina and Georgia mountains. They were the masters of driving in the dark at night and rarely relied on guardrails. The beach and road course at Daytona, as it was called, wasn't really a road course at all. It was an oval made up of sand and blacktop that served as NASCAR's first super speedway before Darlington Raceway was built in September of 1950 and Daytona International Speedway was built in 1959. For decades, tracks at Watkins Glen, New York and Riverside, California satisfied the need for road racing in NASCAR. There was also Augusta International Raceway in Georgia in the early 1960s and a few road course races held on airport tarmacs in the 50s before that. The masters of the left and right turns on road courses in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were Dan Gurney, Parnelli Jones, Bobby Allison, Cale Yarborough, David Pearson, Richard Petty, Rusty Wallace, and Tim Richmond, to name only a few. The rest entered road courses with the mentality of, eh, let's just get this over with. At times, some would turn their rides over to other drivers known as road course ringers, those sports car standouts that raced on them on a regular basis. Those that mastered them, such as NASCAR's leading road course winner, four-time champion Jeff Gordon with nine victories, simply loved them. The Vallejo, California native mastered them like a hot knife through butter. He was the very best and always made getting to victory lane at his home track at Sonoma, California, look easy. When winning at Watkins Glen, it was just eh, another day at the office. It was the same with three-time Cup Series champion Tony Stewart with eight victories on road courses. Winning on them was a piece of cake for the Columbus, Indiana native. Feel or comfort or natural ability, whatever it is, those that win on road courses have that something special that is different from other drivers. It's a mix of finesse and aggression and knowing when to apply both in perfect rhythm. Those that adapt easily to road courses have a magic other drivers just can't seem to find. Maybe it's also having the ability to perform some fancy footwork with the brake, the throttle, and the clutch. In the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the very best drivers of that era 
shine brightest on road courses and NASCAR competition. Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, everyone. I'm Jerry Bunkowski along with my good buddy Ben White, and we are up to episode number five six. That's double nickel plus one, episode fifty six of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast this week, and we got a lot to talk about today, Ben. And it's going to be a, kind of a, a little bit of a different um, uh, take than what we normally do because we're going to be talking a lot about road course racing, and, and just by coincidence, this week the NASCAR obviously goes to sh- the Circuit of the Americas down in Austin, Texas, for their uh, their race down there. Uh, I really like that track a lot, but you know, we, we road course racing has has had a uh, I wouldn't say a checkered history in NASCAR, but it certainly has uh, exploded, if you will, over the last few years. And we can we're going to get into that as well too. But before we get into the road course uh, aspect of today's show, let's talk about number fifty six. Yeah, as we do with every single episode, we t- t- tie in the episode number with the car numbers. So the number 56, like a lot of cars we've car numbers we've seen over the last 15, 17 weeks, a lot of them just uh, did not have a lot of success over the years. And the 56 is kind of uh, in that same boat, Ben. Tell us about the 56, uh, the history of the 56 in uh, in NASCAR. Yeah, sure will, Jerry. And uh, of course, twice in uh, NASCAR's 74 year history, uh, it went to victory lane and and it's uh, a large gap, I guess, if you will, between the first win and the second win. March 27th, 1966, a driver by the name of Jim Herdebees, who had a lot of uh, starts in the IndyCar Open Wheel Series, come over to the NASCAR side and, and ran a, a good many of the NASCAR uh, starts. Uh, he won a race in Atlanta, uh, what was in Atlanta International Raceway, March 27th, 1966, using the number 56 uh, in a Norm Nelson uh, Dodge that day and uh, won the race there in Atlanta. Again, wasn't called Atlanta Motor Speedway, then called Atlanta International Raceway. And then the second time it was used was a guy that we all know in in modern day uh, NASCAR, Martin Truex Jr. won the Toyota Save Mart 350 at Sonoma Raceway on June 23rd, 2013, uh, driving for Michael Walter Racing and then got a, a road course win in the number 56. And uh, while we're on that, the first time the number 56 uh, started was a gentleman by the name of Joe Jerrigan. It was a 200-mile race at the Daytona Beach Road Course, uh, which consisted of part of Highway A1A and then the rest of the course on the beach course. That came on February 5th, 1950. It was the first race of the 1950 season. And he started 22nd in the field and finished 29th driving his own Ford. But uh, that was the second, uh, or actually the first time that the car ran using number 56 in a NASCAR Cup Series race, which was then called the Strictly Stock Series. You know, Ben, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. You know, we both, um, the, the beach courses were just a little bit before our respective time. But I'm curious, you know, I have always been fascinated by what those drivers were able to do back the, you know, in the day, you know, before Daytona International Speedway opened in 1959, we had beach racing, you know, for well over a decade, you know, down in Daytona. And I've, I've often thought this, and I wanted to get your take on this too. You know, is there any 
place that you can think of, or maybe you have thought of already, that we potentially might be able to see a beach slash road course race somewhere in this country? I mean, it, you know, obviously it's kind of difficult because, uh, you know, any of the shoreline on the oceans, either the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean, most of those uh, uh, shorelines are pretty much, you know, occupied either by residential or, uh, you know, they're they're not able to be used for racing purposes or what have you. But I was thinking about this, you know, we, we were talking about this off the air, but like here in Chicago, they're talking about having a temporary street course uh, race in NASCAR, the, uh, much like kind of a NASCAR version of the Long Beach Grand Prix we see in IndyCar. But, you know, I was thinking, well, could maybe Chicagoland have a half beach, half road course, but I don't know if that could happen. But I mean, I'm curious, have you ever thought about, I mean, I'm sure you've seen tapes of, um, you know, of the beach races down in Daytona. Have you ever thought about maybe, is this even still viable? Because, and the reason I ask is because, you know, we, we, you know, back 15, 20, 25 years ago, the, the, uh, the mode of thinking in NASCAR was, okay, we got two uh, road course, I mean, uh, two road course races, we've got Sonoma, we've got Watson's Glen, that's it. And, and fans were clamoring for more and NASCAR was just adamant they wouldn't do it. Then all of a sudden in 2018, we've got the Roval that's brought into the mix down at Charlotte Motor Speedway, the, you know, the road course inside the infield. And that kind of just started an absolute explosion where we went from two races uh, on a, a road course a year to three. And then last year, uh, and a large part of this, I think, had uh, a lot to do with COVID in 2020, we saw a huge explosion, more than double the amount of road course races. We had seven last year in 2021. We have seven again this year, including this weekend's race down at um, uh, the Circuit of the Americas down in Austin, Texas. I I'm curious, have you ever thought about maybe there could be a way we could run uh, another beach slash road course race anywhere in this country and you know or is that just a dream that we'll never see happen again no i think it's possible and and you know i used to say that'll never happen i don't say that again i've seen too many things in this sport that have happened over the past say five years mm -hmm. that have, have totally closed my mouth on that <laughs> <laughs> because i've said that'll never happen well no i don't say that anymore there and you know it's funny you say that there i know of a stretch of of beach and highway that it was it's very much like what it used to be down at a1a and the in the beach course and for people that don't know that was like a 4.1 uh, mile course uh, back in in from say well it even stretched even before 1949 when they used to do uh, speed course runs long before nascar even came along but it was an area on the beach where, you know, of course, it was wide open. You had to do it at low tide, of course, because mm -hmm. the water would come in. But uh, they ran many, many races in NASCAR up until 1958 uh, when Paul Goldsmith won the final race on the beach there. And then they moved, of course, over to the Daytona International Speedway. But it was made up, like I said before, asphalt and beach. But to answer your question, there is a stretch of, of highway and open beach area between um, Ormond Beach and Flagler Beach. I used to own some property there. And, and we used to, of course, you go between Ormond where my, my wife has some relatives and we go up to Flagler. And yeah, I mean, it's possible if you could get the city councils of those cities to, to sign off on that and there'd be places for parking. Of course, it, it costs, you know, I, I'm assuming millions of dollars to put up fencing and, and do those types of things. Uh, 
But yeah, I mean, you could do that kind of thing. There is a wide open stretch of about 20, 25 miles uh, there in that area that could, that sort of thing could be done. Would you want to put a half million dollar race car in the sand? I don't know about that, (laughs) (laughs) but but you could design some type of race car, uh, you know, and a nostalgic sort of car. If you're dreaming a little bit, sure. You could pull out some, some 1950s type cars and put a special suspension type thing underneath them and have some fun with it. Sure. But yeah, there are places that haven't been developed quite yet that, I believe you could pull off something like that and in some type of nostalgic memorabilia type setting. Uh, but yeah, I know of a place that'd be perfect for it. And that I could say that's between Ormond beach and Flagler beach down in Daytona. That would be interesting. I'd love to see it because I mean, you know, if you and I were having this conversation, let's say 10 years ago, uh, although they did have, I, I take this back. They did have one race around that time before they became a regular uh, addition to the cup schedule was the dirt race at Bristol. I mean, who would have thought that we would right. have a dirt race at Bristol? Now we do. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, when, who would have thought that we were going to have seven road course races in a season uh, yet we do. So I'm not going to rule out any potential that, you know, maybe we will eventually see a, 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 you know, a, a beach slash uh, road course race come back somewhere, somehow. I mean, it, I'm sure there'd be a lot of, It'd be a very long-term um, prospect because, you know, I can immediately see that you on one side, you got the race fans, especially the older race fans who would love to see it. And then the new fans would love the novelty of it versus the environmentalists who say, well, you don't want to you know, run on my beach or, you know, have oil or trans fluid or whatever, you know, yeah. falling into the sand. But you, you mentioned about you know, you don't know if they, well, you'd want to have a, have a half million dollar race car in sand. Well, we've got a half million dollar race car in the dirt. So, I mean, dirt, <laughs> sand, same thing, you know, it just yeah, will fit yeah. your shoes. You same know, thing. thing. So. Right. Well, well, I'll tell you the truth, uh, Jerry, you know, looking back on the history side of this a little bit, when Bill France Sr. was uh, trying to develop NASCAR and, and of course, uh, uh, 1948, 49, and of course, June 19th, 1949 was the first NASCAR race. That was on dirt, uh, a quarter mile or half mile track in Charlotte, not Charlotte Motor Speedway, but Charlotte uh, in the, in the city there at Wilkerson mm-hmm. Boulevard. Okay, at that time, the, everything was short tracks, and so he's like, okay, I got to come up with something better than a short track to sort of attract more fans. Well, there were no super speedways at that time until September fourth, nineteen fifty, which was Darlington raceway built in south carolina darlington south carolina and then it followed that was raleigh speedway that was a mile in length so if you think about dover delaware uh, that has just been purchased by speedway motorsports so call it dover motor speedway i believe what it's going to be called mm-hmm. or is called so a mile in length that's about all you had as far as a structured super speedway at that time so we're talking 1949 1950 So Bill France is thinking, okay, I got to come up with something different. So that's when the idea came up. uh, Okay. We've already got racing going on, on the beach and road course or down in Daytona beach. And uh, so let's just call that our super speedway. So instead of it being 2.5 miles, like Daytona international speedway is today, it has been for uh, gosh, since 1959, we're looking at 4.1 miles of racing surface, half asphalt, half sand. So that was technically the uh, super speedway he was looking for until 
Daytona could be built. And it took about 10 years for Daytona International Speedway to be built because of all the, you know, the permits and all Mm -hmm. the land and all the money and all the things that needed to come together for the track to finally open its gates in February of 59. And then when the drivers saw this high banked mammoth, uh, super speed rare. They're like, Holy cow. I've never really seen anything this big and this tall, about five story high, uh, you know, turns, even though they'd been racing on, um, the beach course all those years, it still was quite, well, I, wanna, I don't want to use the word frightening, but it did open their eyes according to Lee Petty and Richard Petty and, and all these guys who are used to racing the short tracks is like, this thing is mammoth and huge, but as Lee Petty put it, and nobody else has seen this thing either. So I'm not going to let it intimidate me and I'm going to go out there and do the best I can. And of course he ended up winning the first inaugural 1959 Daytona 500, but that was talking about the course there on the beach in, in A1A, that was the first so-called super speedway NASCAR had mm-hmm. until, uh, they went to Darlington in 1950, which originally Darlington was a mile and a quarter. And now the length of the track is 1.366. So it was extended a little bit. And the original Darlington was really tough to drive. It was a one groove track, egg shaped as it is today. Of course, the old story is you can have the land, but according to, you know, Harold Brasington was the uh, builder of the racetrack. The, uh, the owner of the land said you can have the, the land, but you got to save my minnow pond in the corner. So, <laughs> right, right. so in order to save the minnow pond, you, the, what was originally the first and second turns, it's now third and fourth turns in order to save that minnow pond that they're narrower than the, what was originally third, third turn and fourth turn. They switched it many years ago. So that just made it the greatest racetrack of all time of that minnow pond. <laughs> and, is, is the minnow pond, it's not there anymore, is it? I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking it still is. It yeah, is still it's. Oh. Yeah, it, it's off the second turn, and and it made one, turns one and two narrower than three and four, which meant you couldn't set up for all four turns. You had to set up for one and two or three and four. And I've heard Bobby Allison say it. Heard Buddy Baker say it. Even Dale Earnhardt say it. Uh, even though he was uh, running in that era, but he had heard other drivers say it. If you weren't hitting the fence in turn three and four, you weren't doing it right. Right. In other words, yeah, you had to you had to sort of let the car drift in the turn, scrape the right uh, rear quarter panel to get into the to the fourth turn right, and you'd see every car scrape the the outside of that uh, right rear quarter panel, and that's where the Darlington stripe uh, moniker came from. Right. And so, but we got off the beaten path. They're talking about Darlington, but that you know that was the only uh, that was the only super speedway that they had at the time in 1950. But it was way different than what we have today. The, the track was so different. But back to what we were originally talking about, it's just that was the that was the main, you know, super speedway. So, uh, yeah, that you know, being able to go back and, and race on on sand and on asphalt would be fun. But I think in today's era, it would be difficult with the environmental uh, issues you might have and. Of course, today's cars—you'd have to have a special car to do it, and I think it, it might be more of a of an invitational, um, non non point special event kind of thing. But hey, why not? It'd be it'd be it'd be fun to try it and and go back to the way it used to be and 
and I'd love to see some 49 and 50 Mercury's and, and Ford's and <laughs> right. I'd love to, let's go to the junkyard. That's what I say. Let's go out and pull some cars out and fix them up, put some great chassis under them and let's put Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson and <laughs> Blaney and a bunch of that. They'd love it. You know, those guys would love it. Right. Right. Well, you know, as you were talking, I had a little bit of a brainstorm and I'm saying to myself, well, okay. Hypothetically, if we couldn't do a beach slash road course, like you were saying between Flagler and Ormond Beach in Florida, what about the possibility of a existing road course like the one we see in the infield at Daytona National Speedway, where we cover half of the track in sand? <laughs> I mean, high just... bank sand car- turns, you know? And, yeah. I, I mean, that it's yeah. doable. I mean, if they could it's do doable. dirt in Bristol, they could do sand in Daytona. I, I knew you were going there. I'll just... <laughs> I knew you were going, Hey, nothing's impossible anymore. Nothing is impossible. I used to say that'll never work. They'll never do that. And I don't say that. anymore. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, but, but getting back to what you were saying about, you know, when Bill France senior was, you know, looking at different ways of trying to, you know, grow the sport, you know, and then obviously when he, he built Daytona international speedway, one of the things I think that, the light bulb went on in his head. I mean, one of many light bulbs, obviously, over the years, was that because so many drivers of that era, you know, the 40s, the 50s, even somewhat and even into the 60s, um, had had earned part, if not all, of their livings, you know, uh, running from the revenueers. You know, the the yeah. you, know, you know, and and how would you outrun the revenueers? You'd be doing it on the back roads, the twisting, mm-hmm. turning back roads, which is kind right. of, I think, what led to the uh, the evolution of road course racing in, in the series because, you know, it was kind of, and maybe I'm going off the beaten path by saying this particular word, but it was kind of an homage, in my opinion, to have road course races, an homage to how the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the moonshine runners would outrun the cops on all these twisting, turning dirt roads, asphalt roads, paved roads, you know, off-road, whatever the case may be. So, um, you know, and that's kind of what surprised me that NASCAR for all those years, probably a good, what, 20, 25 years, I guess it would have been. There was that stretch. There was only either um, uh, Watkins or Sonoma and that was it. And then boom, you know, we, we have uh, the Roval come into effect in 2018 and then, um, you know, we, we obviously went to seven races, uh, seven road course races last year, seven again this year. Uh, there's rumblings that there may even be another uh, one or two more road course races added in the next few years. I don't know how they're going to do it, but that remains to be seen. But, right. um, you know, I, I think that NASCAR, like you said, never say never. And it, for a long time, NASCAR used to say never. They mm-hmm. came to, you know, adding additional road course races. They did said, you know, they said never. I mean, I remember a number of officials, Bill France, Jr., Brian France, Mike Helton. I mean, you go down the list and they were all saying, no, we're happy. You know, we're satisfied with two road course races a year. And that's, that's it. But I think that in this day and age, especially since what happened back in 2007 and 2008, you know, when basically the economy fell, fell off the table uh, we lost so many teams. We lost so I mean, we lost over a thousand employees in the sport of NASCAR because teams either condensed or folded or, you know, because of the recession at the time. And, you know, you, you can't continue doing business as usual in circumstances like that. So finally, you know, we started seeing a little bit more of a 
um, you know, a, a more optimistic, uh, more of a experimental type mindset on NASCAR's part. And this kind of leads me into what I wanted to, you know, one of the big things I want to talk to you about road course racing is that I don't know if it was just the timing or, or coincidence or what have you, but in 2018, you know, it had already been announced that they were going to have the road course race on the uh, infield road course at Charlotte Motor Speedway, the Roval. Now, coincidentally, um, you know, it was uh, August 5th of 2018, Brian France, the then chairman and CEO of NASCAR, um, got into some legal trouble uh, up in upstate New York. And he took a leave of absence, which apparently has become a permanent leave of absence. And his uncle, uh, Bill France Jr.'s younger brother, Jim France, became the first it was interim, then they took the interim title away. He became CEO and chairman, which is he is still today. And I, you know, we were talking about this off the air, and I actually wrote my piece for this week's Out of the Groove um, uh, column, my trading pain column. I, if there's anybody in this sport that I give 110% full credit to, and I mean this in such a positive manner, I don't mean this negatively in any way, shape or form. This is 100% positive. We have to give credit to Jim France. Why, that's why we have seven road course races because Jim France came in, you know, Jim has always been a very soft-spoken guy. I've talked to him a couple of times. I, I just, I'm very impressed with him. He's not boisterous who, you know, kind of like Bill France Jr. was at times could be boisterous. Brian France was a little bit, um, you know, he was he was a little bit of a different type of, of character. But Jim France, very quiet, but very intelligent, extremely intelligent. And his deal was, yeah, certainly stock car racing paid the bills for NASCAR, but he was you know, almost always at heart a sports car kind of guy or a road course kind of guy. And, you know, when he assumed the uh, leadership of NASCAR after Brian France's uh, abrupt departure, that I think set the wheels in motion to start, you know, for a number of things. I mean, with, with the fact that we see seven road course races uh, in a season now where, you know, the most we ever had was, you know, 2018 and 19 when we had the, the or and 20 with, with the, the Roval. But now, you know, we also saw the, the next generation car, which is out this year, very similar, uh, or I shouldn't say similar, but it has a lot of sports car-like uh, abilities, capabilities, uh, uh, the way it's designed, the way it looks, the way it races. And a lot of that you can uh, give credit to, to Jim France, because he brought in a whole different perspective, a whole different mindset, a whole different uh, vision of what NASCAR could be. And I think that going forward, you know, this is only going to make the sport even bigger, more, uh, more positive, more, uh, it'll attract more fans. And, uh, you know, the cars look a little bit more, more like um, the cars you can buy at the, in the dealership, which you really couldn't say that for the last, probably the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, yeah, the nameplates were the same, but the cars really didn't look all that much like what you could set, you know, buy in the, in the uh, car dealership. So uh, my personal opinion, Ben, Jim France, I give him all the credit in the world because he has NASCAR, along with Steve Phelps, they both have NASCAR on the right track and road course racing is certainly a big part of that. I think that, you know, I would not be surprised in the next, let's say, three to five years, we see another one, maybe two more road courses somehow added, or maybe we might go back to a certain course twice a year or that kind of thing. Tell me your, your thoughts about Jim France, you know, the, the, the road course guy, but I mean, he's done such a phenomenal job with, you know, what he brought to the sport because he brought a, he brought an, as I like to say, an insider's 
outside look. You know what I'm saying? He 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 yeah. wanted to try different things, and and I want to get your take on that. Yeah, well, I mean, we're looking at 2022. Uh, he's he's bringing the 20 maybe the 2022 fan uh, into NASCAR with the type of car, the type of things that he's that he's uh, introducing with the new Gen Seven car, but. I agree with you. Uh, there's something I want to go back to something that you sure. said a few minutes ago. You know, you were asking why, uh, why not more road courses in the say fifties or sixties? Well, let me, let me go back to something. First of all, I remember junior Johnson telling me years ago, he said, okay, yeah, I, I ran moonshine on the, on the back roads of North Carolina in the dark. And that's why you had the moonshine moniker because no headlights and you ran by moon, the moonshine. That's why you got that. Mm -hmm. So he said he would run in the mountains and, and do really well. So when he got on these ovals, uh, he's like, well, this is a piece of cake because I don't have to turn right and left and I don't have to go up and down and I don't have to worry about the fact there's no guardrails on these uh, you know, there were no guardrails on the roads in the mountains. There's guardrails here. This is an oval. So this, this is why one of the reasons why he won 50 races in NASCAR, because it's just an oval. I can handle this. <laughs> same, same, same thing with, with Curtis Turner, you know, Curtis Turner was good at, he was set up two bottles or two jugs of moonshine and he'd go a hundred yards or 200 yards down the way. And he could spin a couple of times in back the car in between the two jugs of moonshine and not hit them. Wow. And, you know, wow. he was, he was one of those types. I mean, he was, he was sort of like a show within a show and he'd collect money and do that kind of thing on the side of a mountain. And he was really good about that too. So see, he didn't, these guys running, that's why he won so many races. It's like, this is a piece of cake. I can do this all day long if it's an oval. And plus the fact you know, back in those days, fans really enjoyed watching oval racing. It's kind of like what was done in the South, and they didn't weren't really into to road courses. That was kind of a wine and cheese thing, a California thing. Uh, what the sports cars were doing, not really much of a NASCAR deal. And by the way, a side story: one of the reasons that North Wilkesboro Speedway was built the way it was built. Uh, was the fact that when Gwen Staley and his partners were wanting to build a speedway, the guy shows up with a bulldozer and says, so I hear you want to cut uh, this swath of, of ground into a speedway. He said, yeah, we do. And he said, okay, I'll do that. How much money do you have? And he told him how much money they had. He said, well, that, that'll get you down to that oak tree. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's the way it was designed and the, and the backstretch, I'm trying to tell this, right. The backstretch went up upward, I believe, if I'm not mistaken And the front stretch went downward. Mm -hmm. So no kidding, Jerry, this is the way it was done. And so the guy said X number of dollars that you have in your pocket will take you to the oak tree and I'll turn and I'll come back down this way and it'll take you to this place and I'll turn and that's how much money you have. And that's how I'm going to design this racetrack. And that's a true story. And, and so X number of dollars gets you so far. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that was how that incredibly cool racetrack was designed. And again, that's why the front stretch went down and the back stretch went up. And he said, money runs out here. And <laughs> And so uh, the fans just in the South, I guess they just love, loved oval track racing. So for many, many decades, I mean, a road course was what you saw way out West. 
and way up north, it just wasn't really the the taste of the race fan, if you will, mm-hmm. for many years. So that's why they only had a race at Watkins Glen, and they only had a race at Riverside. And it really wasn't the cup of tea that the race fans really cared so much about and the many eras of NASCAR. As time went on, ovals were the thing to do, whether it be the, the, the small oval, and then it got to be a bigger intermediate like Darlington. Then it got to be, of course, the super speedways like Daytona and Talladega. As time went on, uh, and the era that we're in now, of course, you do see the six and seven road courses. But for many years, the road courses were just the you know the thing to do, and it even spilled over to to the drivers uh, that drivers didn't like them either. You only had just a handful of guys. And while we're talking, real quick, I can I have a list here of the guys who are the very best on the road courses. If you don't mind me reading this sure, off real sure. fast. Mm-hmm. Jeff, Jeff Gordon has nine wins followed by Tony Stewart, Ricky road. Uh, Tony had a Ricky road was six. Rusty Wallace has six. Richard Petty has six. Bobby Allison has six. Dan Gurney, the great Dan Gurney, five, Tim Richmond, five, Daryl Waltrip, five, and Mark Martin with four. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these were the all time great road course winners in NASCAR history who just mastered it. But the vast majority of drivers for many years, I remember in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, the the general thinking of road course is, and I remember guys telling us when we went to Sonoma and Watkins Glen, I'm going to do this because I have to, and I'm going to go the 80 laps, 90 laps that we have to, or whatever those lap numbers were, and I'm going home. And, you know, and you'd have these in the 80s and 90s, well, the 80s, you'd have Rusty, and you'd have late 80s, and then you'd have Richard Petty, Bobby Allison. David Pearson was really good, too. Uh, late 80s, Tim Richmond. Daryl, as I said, had five, and Mark had four. I mean, you just had a handful of guys who were really good on road courses, and a lot of these teams would hire guys to come in and run their cars uh, on the road courses because they they just hated them. They didn't want the ringers. Go. That's what they were. The ringers, right? right. They like the Boris Seds of the world, and yep. and those types who were really good on road courses. They didn't hire, just just get him to do it. I don't want to do it. Just get him to come in and run the guys that really weren't high in the points. They just let them come run their car for the weekend. They take the week off. And so, so as time has gone on, more and more of these guys have become better going to the Bob Bondurant type schools mm-hmm. to learn how to run the road courses. Now that the points chases are so much more prominent among all 40 teams, mm-hmm. then you have these guys who are really wanting to be good at road course. They have to be. But for many years, it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, Jeff's going to win or, you know, Tony's going to win or, or you know, some, Ricky Rudd, somebody's going to win. I don't want to do this. You do it. So that's that was sort of the mindset for many years about road courses. You, you said something that triggered something in my mind. You mentioned Riverside. And, you know, it, it, it's – I totally – forgot about that when I said it earlier about Sonoma and Watkins Glen. I mean, before Sonoma was Riverside and there was also Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, both uh, Riverside and Ontario, though, in the whole big scheme of things, did not really last all that long. I mean, Ontario became a shopping center and I'm not even sure whatever happened to Riverside. You know, what's, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's probably, you know, homes and businesses and that kind of thing. But R- Riverside, correct me if I'm wrong, they only did like I think it was nine or 11 races there and that, and they shut it down. Uh, Ontario, I 
think maybe 15 races. I'm taking a guess on that one, but no. you know, these were in, you know, the, one of the big, most largest populated areas, you know, Southern California in the country. And they couldn't make a go of it in, in a very short period of time. Why, why was that? Do you think? Well, now talking about Riverside, uh, th- that's the track that actually lasted a actually good while 58 to 88. Oh, it did go that long. Okay. My yeah, apologies. yeah, 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 it did go. But, uh, in, in 1958, uh, Eddie Gray was the first winner in a 57 Ford and it went all the way to 1988. Rusty Wallace won the last one there on June 12th of 88. And that was the reason that the track closed. I think it could have been a lack of attendance by 88, maybe a lack. I don't know. I don't want to say lack of interest, but, but plus the land had been sold too, and the track had been sold and it did eventually become a development of many, many, many houses. And there is still just a smidge of that racetrack left. If you know where to look, it's like 50 really? yards or 25. Yeah. There's not much. I mean, it's a small, small section of the racetrack. Huh. Uh, not even 50 yards, 20 yards of it, I think still exists. One of my friends lives out in that area. So if you know where to look, you can find just a smidge of, of asphalt of it, but yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of years, the, uh, the championship was settled out in Riverside. And, and of course, I mean, there's a long history of drivers. Uh, I know Bill Elliott won his first, uh, race out there, I believe in 83. That's the year that Bobby Allison won his championship over Darrell Walter. Finally, after Daryl Walter won it in 81 and 82 after fierce battles with Bobby those two years. So yeah, a lot of history at the track. Uh, and as far as Ontario goes, uh, it was an, uh, an oval that was mimicked uh, Indianapolis motor speedway, very, very close to Indy. And the problem with there was the day they opened it, they were so in debt that they were going to have to fill every seat in the place for the next seven years so many days of the year, like 230 some days out of 365. I mean, it's one wow. of those crazy, crazy deals where they knew going in that, you know, that, and that one lasted from 1971 to, to 1980. I think they had nine races. Nine there. Years, was, right. Exactly. Right. That's right. Saying, right yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was one of those uh, situations where they had nine races. AJ Foyt won the first one in 71. It closed in 1980 with Benny Parsons uh, winning the last one. But again, that particular track was would have worked perfectly in today's uh, scenario with linen cloths, uh, tablecloths in China, and <laughs> speedway clubs, because that's what it had then. Beautiful, beautiful racetrack. I was too young to uh, attend races there uh, as a fan or a journalist. Beautiful racetrack, but it was just so in depth. They had. Uh, movie stars come out for the ribbon cutting and uh, promise the moon. And it was going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it just didn't work. They, they just couldn't keep up with the, 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 the debt load. And uh, eventually it was torn down and, and housing developments or, or some type of industrial uh, marketing or something came, came in. And, and now the funny part about that, Jerry, is that if you go to Ontario, which is not far from the Fontana racetrack, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're really, uh, really lucky to even find where the track was. I mean, you and I've talked this, about this before, how it's extremely hard to figure out where the track even, you can't even find markings of it or uh, all that area has grown up with more and more businesses and industrial uh, buildings and such. It's it's amazing how you couldn't even find anything that even existed. 
Well, you, you know, you know not, not to interrupt you, but you raise a really good point, Ben. Uh, one of our mutual friends who sadly passed away a few years ago, Louis Brewster, who was a sports editor out in Los Angeles with the um, San Bernardino paper and the Riverside mm-hmm. paper, among others. Um, I went out there. This has got to be probably, I'm going to guess maybe 2007, 2008. Um, you know, I was out there for the cup race at Fontana and Louis to his credit, we were good friends. He actually drew me a map of where uh, Ontario, you know, the speedway was. And he said, you're, like, like you're saying, there was, there was nothing there that indicates a track used to be there. But he, mm-hmm. he gave me this map and he says, and, and I, I'm not going to mention the, the company. I'll just say that it was a well-known tire supply store <laughs> that, yeah. I, that bordered the Ontario uh that whole area there was where the start finish line was. And I mean, I, he was so spot on with, you know, he said, well, this is where turn one was. This is where the turn two was Uh, this, you know, you go down this road, this is the backstretch. But I mean, I'll never forget the start finish line was in the literally where a tire supply store was at. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, you, you, you kind of like to go back, but, if there's nothing there to indicate, like you were saying about Riverside, that, you know, there's still a little smidge that, you know, that's still there. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's sad that, you know, tracks like Riverside and, and to a point, you know, Ontario was, even though it was not a, uh, a true road course per se, but, you know, the fact that, that they came and went, I mean, Ontario, especially nine years, it, it reminds yeah. me a lot of like Chicagoland Speedway. I mean, Chicagoland Speedway opened up in, what was it, 2001, I think it was, and 2019, I think was their last year. And unless a miracle happens, that we will probably never see another cup or a NASCAR race added to the Speedway, because I'm hearing that's going to be torn up here in the next few months. But right. that being said, you know, the, the road course history that the sport has uh, we've seen a lot of good road course races, road course tracks rather, um, you know, come and go. But I think that what we have right now, not so much from a uh, a number standpoint with the fact we have seven road courses, but the fact we have such a variety of road courses. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you've got Watkins, you've got Sonoma, then you've got the Roval, you've got um, um, uh, uh, Road America. I mean, you got Coda, you know, that we'll be racing at this weekend down in, in Austin, Texas. The road courses are so different and so unique, you know, and, and I kind of draw like a, a comparison or a juxtaposition, if you will, of the road courses are so different. They're all unique compared to what was essentially, you know, one of the biggest complaints that NASCAR had, you know, in the 90s and into the 2000s was the 1.5 mile cookie cutter tracks. Now that we, you know, people were saying we want more road courses, we've got road courses and they're so different. That's what's so refreshing to me because, yeah, they're, you know, they're two and a half, three, four miles long, whatever the case may be, but they are just, they're no one track, no road course track is like another one. I mean, they're, they're not like the 1.5 mile cookie cutter tracks. I mean, that, I like that. I think that's, you know, NASCAR to its credit. I mean, obviously these were tracks that, you know, uh, with the exception of the Roval, which, well, actually the Roval was there already. I take that back, but you know, they, they did a good job in picking the right kind of tracks. Now road America, that's not far from me. It's about three hours from where I live at. Um, You know, I've been up there for a number of the uh, NASCAR Xfinity races and places, you know, as well as obviously years and years and years of IndyCar and IMSA racing. But I think that, 
you know, to me, road course racing is not only where it's at right now in NASCAR, I think it's going to continue to be even bigger and better. I would not be surprised, Ben, and you might be surprised that I'm going to say this, but, you know, if we continue to maintain the 36 race regular or regular schedule, rather, each year, I'm not going to be surprised to see us have 10, maybe even 12 road course races, maybe a decade from now. I I, yeah. I just be, feel that NASCAR is so sold in that, and that's where they're going to continue to get, you know, the, the new fans. I mean, you know, we, we see a lot of the young fans, the, the new fans coming to the track, uh, you know, they, they don't, they, I mean, some of them do have, you know, the higher performance cars, uh, you know, like the Camaros or the Mustangs, or, you know, even though Dodge is not in the, in the, in the sport right now, but I mean, they, the Challengers and the Chargers and that kind of thing. But, you know, a lot of them have, you know, the, the Hondas, the Toyotas, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Kias, the Nissans, you know, and, and, you know, you can talk about like, you know, road or drifting, you know, the, a lot of them do that kind of thing. That's where your, your future marketplace is. I mean, they may not be able to drive the same exact cars that they see in NASCAR, but I think there's a certainly a, a, a lure there to get those young fans to to come you know, and watch these races and you know really learn a lot about about cars in general. Yeah, well, you know, when when you I want to go back just a quick second here, sure. Jerry. I was just adding up some numbers. And if you go back to again, Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, Ricky Rudd, Rusty Wallace, Richard Petty, Bobby Allison, Dan Gurdy, Rich. Tim Richmond, Darrell Waltrip, Mark Martin. Then I want to add David Pearson and Mark, the great Mark Donahue, drove for, for uh, Roger Penske. Mm-hmm. You're looking at about, sit well, those, not counting Pearson and Donahue, 60 victories among those uh, 9, 10 drivers on road courses throughout their careers. And then you add Pearson and Donahue, 62, 63 victories among those all those great legends of NASCAR in the past. That's just a tremendous amount of talent on, on those road courses. And, and, you know, Bobby Allison told me one time, I can say this now, but when he was driving on the road courses, he never would let any of the major networks put a camera in his car to show his feet. And I said, why, why did you not do that? Cause you know, Bobby and I are really close friends. He said, mm-hmm. because I didn't want them to know my secret on winning on road courses. And I said, well, what was it? He said, I didn't use my feet to shift. In other words, I never would push in the clutch. I would also double. I would double clutch. I would. I would double shift in the car, to where I would not push in the clutch pedal. I just shift, you know, and take a chance. I I could mess up the transmission. I was that gonna way, say right, right, right. But I didn't do it, and I would gain seconds that way. And as I did it in uh, throughout the afternoon, I could gain four or five seconds on the field that way. And I didn't want anybody to see me not shifting because they they figure out my, you know, my strategy. And that's how he won six road course races, not to mention IROC races that he won. And, and he just discovered that from an open wheel driver, or a, I think it might have been even a Can-Am driver. He said, that's the trick in, in winning on a road course is don't use the clutch. And I thought, boy, that's interesting. You take a chance that way but because you could mess up your transmission. But if you do it smoothly enough and, you know, if you're good at it, then you can gain over an afternoon, you can gain several seconds on the racetrack. And before you know it, you're, you know, you're picking up positions and you can gain some, some track, uh, you know, some, some places on the racetrack and possibly hopefully get four, three, four seconds ahead of the field when the checker flag flag drops. And that's what he did. So there's your little track fact for the day (laughs) (laughs) Right, from from a great champion. I'm going to ask you a question. And, you know, because we've seen 
you know, Watkins Glen, we've seen Sonoma, we've seen Riverside, and then we've got the other tracks, you know, the, the Roval and, and Road America, et cetera, et cetera, Skoda uh, today. When, when, I mean, of the tracks you've either been at or have watched on TV, is, is there one track, road course track that to you is the number one track? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I can never come up with a favorite. I mean, I, I've always liked Sonoma. I, if I had to really lean in any direction, I'd probably say Sonoma followed very closely by, by maybe Road America. But how about you? I mean, what's what's well, your favorite road course race track? Well, oh gosh, you know, I mean, from a fan viewpoint, I, I always, I always liked a Riverside. Mm-hmm. I, and I think the reason I liked it so much is because not every, not every year they would show it on television. I love the fact I would just be camped out by the radio listening to the Riverside races because it just seems so far away. And I remember those races would stretch into the night because it, they were so, you know, they always started. I didn't like the fact they started so late because it was, uh, you know, three hours behind us. But, you know, there was it was late into the Sunday night. So I would listen to them as a kid. And I, I remember Bobby winning some races uh, out there. And I was a big Matador fan, Bobby fan. And that was the favorite one. But, you know, I always, I always enjoyed visiting Watkins Glen because it's such a beautiful area up there. It looks a lot like North Carolina, where mm-hmm. I'm from. Right. And uh, just really nice folks up that way. Great, great race fans in Watkins Glen, too. Very rabid, great race fans i love those folks up there the track itself uh love it um that that'd be my favorite watkins Glen. i think i i i was there a couple of times uh you know in the in the uh, uh 2005 and 6 i think it was or something like that and you're right i mean there are definitely comparisons to be made between uh, that area of the country and uh in the charlotte area or north carolina for that matter uh i mean if you if you didn't know any better you'd say that watkins Glen was nowhere near New York City. I mean, there's such a difference that, you know, dichotomy. They're a couple hundred miles apart or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I've always, I always enjoyed going up to uh, there. I mean, all the trees. And I, I can't remember, Ben, who it was that said it. There was a NASCAR driver. And this happened, oh, I'm going to guess maybe 15 years ago, maybe. And I, I keep on thinking Tony Stewart, but I don't think it was Tony. I think it was somebody else that they said that the one thing they liked about coming to Watkins was because there were so many trees. It, 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 they, um, uh, uh, breeded, that's not the right word, but bred oxygen. And that's, you know, which cars obviously get a lot of oxygen racing in that kind of environment. And it was good for race cars because they had so much oxygen because of the trees. And that. And I, I can't remember who it was that said that, but it just, it, it raised a lot, a lot of good points. And in fact, wasn't Watkins Glen, correct me if I'm wrong, would have been 2001, I think it might have been. Wasn't that the track where Jimmy Johnson went flying? Mm-hmm. It was actually a bush race at the time, if I remember correctly. Yeah. He flew off, uh, you know, it was coming up towards the front stretch, and he flew right across the track and piled into the uh, the tire wall. Wasn't that the, tr- the race? Um, yeah, it was. he was driving for Herzog Motorsports. Right, 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 and, right, right. Yeah, in a uh, bush series event. Fortunately, he jumped out of the car and did the old Superman move on top. You know, when he raised his arms, scary move there. Yep. Um, pretty sure it was Watkins Glen. The only, I mean, I have to say the saddest, one of the saddest days I was not at the racetrack the day J.D. McDuffie lost his brakes there and was and lost his life there in 1991. I was not at the racetrack. I saw it on TV. 
very, very sad. Uh, he and uh, Jimmy Means uh, got together, and but I, but JD's brakes failed before they got together, and uh, he crashed and flipped uh, in one of the turns. There, it's sad that we lost JD McDuffie uh, at Watkins Glen. Uh, so yeah, that was a sad, sad day at Watkins. But every time I went up there, I just really enjoyed uh, the people, enjoyed the track, enjoyed the racing. Just, just a great experience. Very, very nice people up there. I, I just really, I haven't been in several years, but I'd love to go back. Well, you know, there, there's always the talk about, you know, NASCAR would like to, you know, build a track or see a track built. Uh, and, and I think that you probably would get a better opportunity to, to build it a road course rather than a speedway up in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, I can't, I mean, to me, a speedway up in that area, you know, be it Washington State, Oregon, maybe even into British Columbia, um, mm-hmm. you know, that to me would be very similar to what you see at Watson's Glen. I mean, a lot of trees out there and that kind of thing. And, you know, yeah. we would finally be able to get uh, racing out there. Now, of course, we do have a very good road course there that the IndyCar series runs at, at Portland uh, International Raceway. Um, you know, in fact, uh, the Xfinity race series is racing there at Portland this year, if not mistaken, correct? Um, I believe so. I'm not hundred percent yeah. sure. So maybe that could be, you know, at some point down the road here, maybe in the next few years, if it proves to be a success there, kind of like with road America, where they started with Xfinity for several years, and then they brought the cup cars there. So maybe we might see cup cars, maybe eventually at Portland, great racetrack there too, as well. Mm-hmm. Ben, you know, uh, I know we're getting a little bit closer to it at the end of the show today, but you know, the, the thing about road course races to me today is that, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, it really brings out the full package of a driver. And, you know, whereas like you said about when, when Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart and those guys were in their heyday, when it came to road course racing, a lot of drivers would just essentially, you know, they would concede that race to, a, you know, another driver because they just didn't have the talent. Now, you know, these drivers, uh, the t- drivers of today, they do a ton of work on the simulators. Um, you know, they, they, they know that, you know, a, a, a championship could potentially be won or lost on a road course uh, track. And I'm still talking about, you know, back, you know, in the, in the 90s and, and 2000s and even into the t- 2010 era um, where we only had the two tracks. Now we have, then we have three and then now we have seven. So if you have one bad road course race, that could really throw off, you know, your championship uh, uh, opportunities or possibilities. So it, it it behooves you to be on your game and be as good of a driver as you can. I mean, sure, you can turn left all day long, but, it, you know, getting going from left to right, right to left, you know, the chicanes, you know, the uh, all the turns. I mean, that to me proves how good of a driver really is. I mean, you can say things about like, uh, you know, Kyle Busch or a uh, Kyle Larson or a Chase Elliott. These guys know how to race on road courses where, yeah. you know, there's other guys that, you know, they just they can never seem to get it or they just can't get the success that they normally would have on a, on a regular oval track. No, that's true. And I, and I don't want to take anything away from the guys today because they're extremely talented. I'm not saying anything on a negative viewpoint. I want to go back to say a car from the let's let's take 1974 for instance okay the car is way way bigger than what we have today it's mm-hmm. a full-blown stock car parts that are used on uh, 1974 on a regular passenger car a two-door dodge for instance were used on those particular race cars the seats they were in uh were 
not race seats. They were like a single seat. And a lot mm-hmm. of some of the drivers would make their own seats. I know Dale Earnhardt uh, in the nineties would make his own seats from Chevrolet vans. He would make his own. So it wasn't a race seat, but in those days, the car was super big, you know, like, you know, uh, just from, from back to front, just wide cars, big cars. And so vision this for a second, you're in the middle of a lake, you're on a boat, a rowboat, and you're on a road course. And it's very similar. And I've heard it described to me by Bobby Allison and Richard Petty, both that it's very much like rowing a boat the the whole time you're on a road course because mm-hmm. you're you're fast in some parts of the racetrack you're slower in some parts of the racetrack and you're shifting up shifting down shifting you're moving your legs you're clutching uh you know the clutch you're pushing the brake and a lot of this stuff is done with your your left foot even your braking is done with your left foot a lot of people may not realize that race drivers do that they don't take the foot off the the gas pedal or the, the throttle, they're using their left foot so much of the time to use the clutch and to use the brakes. And so you're moving, moving, moving all the time. And you're, 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 uh, using the, the, the shifter, you're using the clutch, you're using the brakes. So you're moving all the time in these cars and you're doing that for what 90 laps. So it's just very much like rowing a boat it, and it's not, it, it's the same today, but you, you're more confined in the cockpit of the car, the greenhouse part of the car, uh, you've got these thing, these pads around your helmet, the full face helmets. It wasn't like that in the seventies where you had the open face helmets, the, uh, the, you had a much wider cockpit inside greenhouse area. So very, very different than, than what it is today. Not taking anything away from these guys today is very mental, a lot of work going on inside the cars, but a very different type of work when you're on a road course. And so, yeah, it was very different. Exactly. You know, I want to go back to one thing we talked about earlier that I brought up and I, and I forgot, I forgot to mention this to you or ask you about this. Um, you know, we, we talk about the next, you know, the next big thing, you know, and obviously road course racing right now is the next big thing within NASCAR. Uh, you know, I, I alluded to what um, reports a couple of weeks ago that the city of Chicago is talking about a street course race, you know, in, in or near downtown for NASCAR, you know, be the, the I guess it'd be the first uh, true uh, street course uh, cup race. If it does come to fruition, be it Chicago or wherever, do you foresee down the road, let's say, let's say a decade from now. I mean, you know, that that's plenty of time. Do you foresee that street courses, temporary street course races, like we see in IndyCar, Will they become the next big thing for NASCAR? Because, you know, I, I think that you and I could both agree that 15 years ago, we would never have, you know, we would both have said that we'll never see five, let alone seven road course races in a single season. Now we have seven, maybe even more in the next few years. What about street course races? Do you, do you think that that's the next big thing for NASCAR to, to look at and potentially can it, can it, uh, can it work? Yeah, I think it can work. I think uh, you're going in the next uh, 10, 12 years, I think you're going to see a a battery powered type car. You're going to see maybe smaller cars. You're going to see more street course races, uh, maybe a few more road course races. I I think the the whole in a Gen 8 setting, I think you're going to see a whole different dynamic than what you see today. Again, my new motto, never say never. <laughs> <laughs> Everything could, it's going to change a lot more than it is today, really. I think so. 
That that's the name of your next book. Never say never. Or the other another possible name is go down to the oak tree and make a left. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my money will only take you so far. <laughs> the, oh, the bulldozer. <laughs> that's a good yeah. subhead. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's the way it was. Yeah. All right. Let's let's talk about, you know, uh, we always like to uh, conclude each week's show with our track of the week and the driver of the week and the track of the week. We've already talked about it already. But, uh, you know, I think it's certainly worth revisiting is Riverside International Raceway. I mean, you know, uh, again, I was never there in person, uh, but, you know, it, it, it it's it's history and its legacy. I think will forever live on. I mean, you know, maybe 50 years from now, fans won't even know what what Richmond or I'm sorry the, what um, um, uh, Riverside International Raceway was, but it really played a big part in NASCAR's development, especially in the uh, you know going into the 80s, and then you know of course it it it, uh, it faded away unfortunately. But uh, your, your your thoughts about you know the the track of the week Riverside International Raceway, Ben? Well, yeah, Jerry, and it was a way for NASCAR to be on the West Coast for many years. You know, NASCAR for uh, for a lot of, uh, I guess, several decades was sort of a southeastern regional uh, sport. And, of course, I say that, but then in the uh, early 50s, of course, we had races on the West Coast, and there was two points battles, the one on the East, one on the West, mm-hmm. and uh, whichever could come out the best wherever you raced. You could, uh, of course, become champion. Some drivers did choose to go out west and race there. But Riverside began 1958, actually June 1st, 1958. Eddie Gray was the winner in a 57 Ford. And, of course, we stayed there from 58 to 1988. You had some great winners there. Dan Gurney drove in the Wood Brothers Ford for many years and had uh, uh, four victories there for them and was the master in the uh, in the mid to late 60s for the Wood Brothers. Richard Petty had some wins there. Bobby Allison won there. Uh, of course, the cream of the crop guys, the guys who were great on the uh, on the road courses. Cale Yarbrough was a winner, winner there. Uh, Daryl Waltrip uh, won several. Bobby, as I said, won. You know, Tim Richmond had a couple of great wins. Ricky Rudd, Jeff Bodine, Terry Labonte. Uh, the ones that were so good at rising to the top and being the best on the road courses. And then 1987, 1988, Rusty Wallace won the final two uh, races there and a Pontiac. June 12th, 1988 was the final victory uh, for the Cup Series. And then the race uh, track was demolished and made into a housing development. A little bit of the track still left, but you have to know where to look. Uh, And so 30 years of racing and uh, sad that we, are no longer going to Riverside, and uh, it was a, it was a great track to to listen to races, and also a great track to visit. Exactly, exactly. You know, um, one of the things I was going to mention is that you know when we talk about road course racing, especially now, you know, this day and age where we have seven of courses or road courses uh, on the schedule, it, it, call me crazy, but one thing I've noticed though. And this is kind of going back to what I said a few minutes ago about how you know drivers have to be masters of everything. They have to learn how to be road course drivers. Even if they, they hate it, they still have to become good at it because it could be the difference between a championship and not a championship. The one thing, though, that we, we haven't talked about really, and, and I wanted to bring this up before we get to the final segment, which is our driver of the week. But one of the things that I would have thought we would have seen more of today with the seven road courses we have is more road course ringers, but it's exactly the opposite. I mean, we, we very rarely now see 
you know, uh, extra cars come out, you know, teams field an extra car for a, a road course driver. I mean, you know, back in the 90s and into the 2000s, we had Boris said, you know, we had Canadian Ron Fellows. There were a number of guys who, you know, would come out to either Watkins or Sonoma and they would do their deal. And, and uh, you know, they were very good at it. I mean, a guy that, even though he was a full-time cup driver, another guy was excellent at road course. It was Marcus Ambrose now, you know, back out in Australia now. But the fact that we don't see the ringers is kind of, uh, to me, it's almost like a contradiction in terms that now we've got all the road course races we want, yet we don't see that many road, uh, ringer uh, drivers. Any thoughts on that, why that's taking place or why that's happened? Uh, I think it's because the drivers of today just have to be good everywhere. Mm-hmm. They There's no time to step out and, and uh, uh, try to, to uh, give the car over to somebody else because they've got to be good on the intermediates, the super speedways, the short tracks. There's too much at stake now. And uh, so they have any time they have off, if they are lacking anywhere, they're in the simulator or they're making uh, some laps on, on road courses at, say, a Bob Bondrat type school. Mm-hmm. They just really got to give 150% to being the best that they can be because one race, uh, two races, and, and their chances of being in the, in the uh, championship hunt could be very... Uh, diminished i yeah. guess is the, yeah there's just no it used to be that you could have somebody step in and be okay but that's in the days when you maybe had 15 or 18 cars legitimately in the championship hunt where today really you can't afford that you got all 40 cars need to be in position you know because honestly jerry if a guy who normally was would run 33rd 34th i could like uh uh, a McDowell, uh, Michael McDowell, he wins the 500 and that's no disrespect to Michael when I said he runs that far back, but I mean, he, uh, he might, re- let's, let's call it 15th or 18th or 20th. I mean, he wins the 500 and suddenly he is in the chase. Mm-hmm. And so that could happen to anybody in today's field where he runs really well one Sunday and wins the race uh, of anything, the biggest race in NASCAR's, uh, schedule the 500 suddenly he's in the championship hunk. So it could happen to anybody and they can't, they can't give up the car to anybody. Now they have to be ready to win every Sunday. Exactly. We're going to wrap up today's episode of a lifetime in NASCAR with our driver of the week. And before I get into who he is, um, one thing I, we didn't talk about, and, and I didn't know this until last week when I was doing some prep work for the IndyCar race that was down at Texas Motor Speedway this past weekend, Jimmy Johnson, seven time NASCAR cup champion, 83 wins in the series, only one road course win in his career. Blew hmm. me away when I saw, I mean, I thought for sure Jimmy had, you know, a half dozen or more. Nope. He only had one win. And that was, uh, I believe was at Sonoma. That was the only time he had a road course win. So even some of the best drivers of their era just didn't have the success in a road course, uh, you know, road course track, which leads me up to our driver of the week who had a lot of success, probably the most success of, you know, the, the drivers of our era. Um, and I'll, I'll give you the honors to tell us who that driver of the week is, Ben. Yeah. Well, that driver of the week is going to be Jeff Gordon and 93 victories in the cup series, uh, nine victories on, on the uh, road courses. It actually leads to the list of uh, NASCAR drivers who have won on road courses at Sonoma at Watkins Glen and the best, I mean, and we're talking again, we've read this list before, but Tony, Ricky Rudd, Rusty, Richard mm-hmm. Petty, Bobby, Dale, I mean, uh, Dan Gurney, Tim Richmond, Daryl Walter, Mark, and even of the guys today, 
uh, who have won uh, on the road courses. And we're talking, uh, you know, Chase Elliott, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex, Kevin Harvick, Ryan Blaney, Kurt Busch, Denny Hamlin, Joey Logano, AJ Allmendinger. He leads them all. And uh, just, but again, 90, uh, 93 wins, four-time champion, Jeff Gordon, the best. And I guess some of that could have uh, come on, you know, becoming a, a sprint car driver very early in his, mm-hmm. his career and micro midgets. And I mean, from time he's like four years old, he's driving something, turning left, the very best. And uh, hats off to Jeff Gordon. He leads that category and he's won just virtually everywhere. So uh, hats off to Jeff Gordon, one of the very best in, in cup series and, and one of the best people too. He's a good friend and uh, have a lot of respect for him. Exactly. Well, the fact that he, you know, 10%, uh, 10% of his 93 wins were on road courses, that speaks for itself. I mean, he just, uh, I mean, I, I would have loved in, in his heyday, you know, and, 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 and this is not, no disrespect to NASCAR, but given Gordon's prowess in road course racing, I would have loved to seen him maybe race for a year in Formula One just to see how he would have done, because obviously Formula One is all road courses. And, you know, or a guy like a, maybe even a Tony Stewart. I know Michael Andretti went over there, did not do very well, came back with, was it a year and a half he was back? Um, but I mean, there, there are certain guys that, you know, you'll never see it happen, but you would love to see how they would have played out, you know, on another circuit that, you know, is primarily road course races. But yeah. Anyway, well, Ben, as always, great show. Thank you ever so much, as, as always. And uh, we go to episode number 57 next week on the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. Hopefully everyone enjoyed today's episode. Uh, I learned a lot about road course racing that, that I didn't know about. And uh, that's my buddy, buddy ben, uh, ben White there. He's the, he's the professor. You're the new professor. I <laughs> call the professor. He, you know, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Just a lot. Got a lot. Still got a lot to learn. Well, as long as you grade me on a curve, that's all I care about. You know? <laughs> all right, my friend, listen, you take care. And everyone, thanks again for listening to Lifetime and NASCAR Podcast, episode number 56. We'll be back with episode number 57 next week, right here on Lifetime and NASCAR. A Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mall. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows and don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewers Guide. The Weekly Viewers Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all fresh, it's all free, and it's all on GroovyMotorsports.com. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. 
Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at ForneyIn.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, Ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.